0: Hi, I'm Rachel Gazdick, and this is Formative, the podcast where today's leaders are interviewed by the leaders of tomorrow. Our guest today is Dr. Brian Heinlein, Chief Medical Officer of the National Collegiate Athletic Association and Professor of Neurology at Indiana University and NYU. He has also served as the Chief Medical Officer of the U.S. Open Tennis Championships and the United States Tennis Association. Actively involved in sports medicine for over 30 years, Dr. Hainline has built a career on supporting the physical, emotional, and mental well-being of young people. We are so pleased he is continuing his work with us today. And now to my student co-host, I'm happy to welcome back Jake from PS-175 in the Bronx. Jake did a tremendous job interviewing former U.S. astronaut Dr. Charles Camarda. So I know he's going to do great work leading our conversation with Dr. Heinlein. Jake, how are you
1: feeling about today's interview? As always, I'm a little nervous, but again, I'm extremely excited.
0: All right. Well, Jake, without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Heinlein. And why don't you take the show away?
1: I think it's a pleasure to meet you today on this fine afternoon or evening. I don't know the time right now. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Jake. Thanks for taking the time. I'll start with like a... Fun little question. So I read that you were born in Indianapolis or moved there. So I was wondering if you like Indiana Jones. Yeah,
2: so I was actually born and raised in Detroit and pretty much have been in the Midwest most of my life, except I moved to New York for professional reasons for my training and my current job is in Indianapolis. So I kind of live in two places, Indianapolis and New York. But with regard to Indiana Jones, What I like about Indiana Jones is he's very decisive, and so um, if there's a lot of confusing issues going around him, he's just going to take care of things as he needs to.
1: Yeah, I I also like I also love Indiana Jones, and I wish I could go on his adventures. That that would be fun.
2: Yeah, he's definitely exciting. You know, I like to believe that we all have an Indiana Jones inside of us, and it may not be chasing a gold nugget in a in an exotic place, but it might be chasing our dreams in a way that others haven't. And the journey is just as exciting as his, but, you know, might not make hundreds of millions of dollars on a TV screen. That's
1: the only difference. (laughs) So what is your earliest memory of your job of being at the NCAA?
2: Well, you know, I'm the first chief medical officer for the NCAA. So Even though the organization has been around since 1906, they just created this position. And my first memory is arriving here on the job and there was a a desk and a computer and nothing else. I remember I just went through my metaphorical Rolodex and started calling people and saying, hey, how can we collaborate together? And so in some ways it filled me with anxiety because I said, I really have to do this right.
1: Wow. I, I would never imagine having to like go go up to your job at the, as a chief medical officer, but then all of a sudden you're just, you're, you're like, you just empty. Everything's empty. It's just, you have to create everything. All you have is a computer and whatever. And wow, you really turned it around.
2: Well, you know, I wouldn't say it was me who turned it around. I, I would say it was really a collaborative effort. And so when I made all those phone calls, it literally was not just to all my colleagues, but I I cold called a lot of organizations like the leadership from the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine or the leadership from the National Athletic Trainers Association. In my former jobs, I really didn't have contact with these individuals. And I said, hey, can we just strategize on a way where we all collaborate together and we figure out what's best for college sports And, and really thinking about college sports as a public health matter. And so it was a, a, a huge amount of outreach. And, and ultimately, I would say anything that happened was a result of a, a great collaborative effort.
1: So I know that you obviously have like three jobs, and like like two teaching jobs and job at, at the NCAA. And when I was thinking of having a dream job, I actually wanted three jobs as well. I, would, I wanted to be game developing and a voice actor and an author. So as someone who also wants three jobs, I would like to ask um, a, a fellow three job person, how do you manage three jobs?
2: So the, the one job is being chief medical officer of the NCAA. But my academic appointments with, uh, so I have one with Indiana University School of Medicine and and then with uh, NYU Grossman School of Medicine. So I'm a a clinical professor of neurology in in both of those institutions. But, But those are academic and what we call voluntary appointments. So I'm actually not working for Indiana University or NYU as a paid staff member. But I do teach a course at NYU once a month. And But I'm doing that as a volunteer. And then I also teach at Indiana University. But within that, within the NCAA, I I have written a number of what we call academic publications. And and I've also uh, written three books since I started this position. And so within that, all of the publications, I cite that I'm part of NYU and Indiana University because that helps those institutions say, well, here, here's one of our faculty members, and they publish these papers or, or these books. So, so I think it's fair to say that I have two academic appointments, but one full time job.
1: So I wonder, like, do you ever get to like, see your family? Like how many times a day? Or how many times a week? How many times a month do you see your family?
2: Well, you know, I learned long ago that I used to think a lot about time management, but I no longer do. I, I, there's this concept called energy management. So how do you manage your energy? So that's your physical energy, your emotional energy, your mental, and, and your spiritual. Being with family is a critical part of that. So pre-pandemic, I was traveling a lot to be with the member schools and the many conferences. But I made it a point that every Thursday evening, I was home for dinner. And then I would work from home Friday, Saturday. I wouldn't try not to work on Saturday. And, and then I would fly back to Indianapolis or my next destination Sunday night. And with that, we just always made it a point that it would be real family time. After the pandemic started, I was working from home, our home in New York, virtually, I'd say, like 100% of the time, really. And so I was always with family Insofar as we could be with family, because even our son in Queens, you know, if we were to see each other, we had to follow all the COVID protocols. Our youngest daughter was living with us because Brooklyn was essentially shut down. So actually, post-pandemic, I saw my family even a lot more than normal. And now we're starting to go back into this. I'm traveling. I'm in Indianapolis right now. and and But I think I'm going to be traveling a lot less because I really value the family time. It's just sort of a, an essential part of who I am.
1: So, since you did tennis and are now doing basketball, I was wondering if you have a favorite sports team.
2: Well, you know, I uh, even though I'm involved in sports a lot, I I don't watch a lot of professional sports teams, but. I'm going to really date myself and go way, way back. And my favorite team was the Detroit Tigers because, uh, you know, they did win the World Series in 1968. The year after Detroit was in really a deadly and devastating riot. And I got to go to the World Series, my only World Series that I ever attended. And so that team to me symbolizes hope and rejuvenation. And that's always stayed with me. So they're my sentimental favorite.
1: Wow, that was actually like really inspirational about how your, about how a sports team was able to pull its own like state, city, whatever, out of its own trenches. Wow. That's big. I remember the last time I played sports, I was three years old playing t ball, And even then I wasn't even playing it. I I would like put my helmet on backwards and say, who turned out the lights? or so just <laughs> play with the sand. Like I wasn't even playing. I was just there.
2: Look, the NCAA is filled with people who didn't necessarily play high school or college sports, but they really love sports and view, view sport as a, a good for society. I, I always treasure the words of the late Nelson Mandela, and, and he viewed sport as an equal opportunity. He said, it doesn't matter what religion you are, what color you are, what socioeconomic background you come from. When you're on the sport field, everyone should be equal. And he even said that you can judge a country by how it treats sport. So, you know, you don't have to be a, a player of sport or a gifted athlete to to really be interested
1: in, in sport as a public health and even as a national good. So I got to say that sport really can shape a country or a state or a city or anything, really.
2: Well, it can. You know, you can look even at the Olympics. And unfortunately, there's another doping scandal. and And some countries have defined themselves by systematic cheating in sport. And, you know, other countries like Norway, which how can they win more Olympic gold medals than anyone else? It's because for them, they truly have an equal access to sport for everyone in their country. And they have a development model that says, look, if you're on this pathway and you happen to really love sport and you have certain gifts, Uh, We're going to help you develop them. And you can compare that to, say, maybe even in our country, the United States, it's not so equal opportunity. And there there are a number of schools that don't have sports in them. That's why New York Edge is so critically important because it offers sports as an after-school opportunity. But, you know, Norway, I think, is a great example. Russia, with its doping scandal, is not such a great example right now. And the United States, with unequal opportunity, I think they could do a lot
1: better um I, I remember in science i think in seventh grade there was a whole like thing about like blood doping like how people will like put their life on the line just to be better at sports but even then it's just flat out cheating yeah
2: blood doping and that usually happens in endurance sports so you're not going to see it in power sports like football or weightlifting because the having more blood it, it allows you to Do what we call aerobic activity, so something where your body needs oxygen the entire time that that you're competing. So that would be for like marathon riders or people doing long distance cycling. So this is public information. You can look at the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency investigation of Lance Armstrong. He was a national hero, right? And he won what seven Tour de France, and he was a cancer survivor, and so. He was awe-inspiring, but underneath it all, he was very involved and even the ringleader in systematic doping in the sport of cycling, and so it included blood doping, but also not just, you know, infusions of other people's blood, but infusion of your own blood that you put in storage and then, you know, artificially manipulating the level of erythropoietin, which is a a hormone that actually allows you to produce more blood. So, you know, the the very sad consequence of that is that he was stripped of all of his titles of Tour de France and, you know, no longer is that national hero. So, yeah, there's blood doping and a lot of other drugs that one can take that, that can really taint um, the integrity of
1: sport. And that's really sad because that can literally like shape a whole person's career. Like they can be viewed one second as this amazing, amazing celebrity who was so good at this one sport to this person who was actually just really just cheating and kind of ruins their whole life.
2: I think even more importantly, you know, when when you have influence and when you're put in the public eye like that there's a responsibility, an ethical responsibility as well. You didn't become a cause of by, by accident. You developed that because there were numerous communities of people who supported you, who who helped you, you know, and including organizations like New York Edge. I mean, it takes so many different communities and people to really help someone achieve that level of success. And, and then to really blow it all up and corrupt activity. Yeah, it's sad for yourself, but you've really let a large number of people down. And, and again, you know, we all have an ethical and moral responsibility to do right. But, but when you're in the public eye like that, I I think that ethical responsibility becomes even more important.
1: I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about traumatic brain injury, because I remember my dad always tell stories about how, when he played football in high school or college, I remember, I think it was high school where he was actually told to grab the ball and run like a missile. So meaning your head will be out like that. And while you're running around and that's how he got so many concussions. And I learned, well, I didn't really learn, but like, I kind of got more info that your brain w- w- was literally like bashing against your own skull and that definitely shouldn't be happening. So I was wondering if you could tell us about traumatic brain injury.
2: Yeah, well, I definitely agree that shouldn't be happening, and 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 what you described is something that we call spearing, uh, which is outlawed in football, and for good reasons. And so, when you're loading up your head like a, a human missile, you know the helmet doesn't protect you. It you know can protect you from severe catastrophic brain hemorrhage, but it doesn't protect you from concussion uh, in any meaningful way. And especially when you line up you know, in a linear force like that, you're really risking not only your brain, but your spinal cord. That's a very high risk activity to cause severe spinal cord injury and subsequent paralysis. But, you know, traumatic brain injury, uh, it's defined very generally in three categories, mild, moderate, and, and severe. So severe would be like someone's in a coma, they have a brain hemorrhage, or there's been much destruction to the brain. And mild is sometimes used synonymously with concussion although they aren't exactly the same. And our work at the NCAA, when when I first came on board, I met my counterpart at the Department of Defense who was overseeing all of the research for the Department of Defense on concussion and other forms of traumatic brain injury. And we realized in the military in Iraq and Afghanistan alone that there were over 350,000 traumatic brain injuries that occurred just from those two wars. And the majority of them were concussion. And when you look at it further, the majority of the concussions were not from blast injuries and bombs. They were they were actually from you know traumatic encounters very similar to what happens in a lot of sports, not just American football, but but wrestling and even baseball, basketball. So any contact sport, there's a risk of concussion. So what we did early on is we collaborated with the Department of Defense and agreed that we really don't know much about traumatic brain injury. In fact, we know very little about it. The press was saying all sorts of things that were really incorrect. So we're we are now eight years into a study. It's the largest concussion study ever done in history where we've looked at over 55,000 athletes and cadets, and we're expanding that study over the next 20 years. So it'll be the first definitive study to really understand traumatic brain injury in sport and in the military. And even now, as a result, we've made several modifications to policies and education as we're learning more and more about this. So, And for right now, we we have not concluded that any one sport That's at least an NCAA sport should be banned because there are safeguards and policies and ways to play a sport properly. And USA football, which is the youth national governing body, they have put together an American development model. They call it the football development model, which says all your activities in sports should be developmentally appropriate. So that might mean, you know, if you're playing football at age eight, maybe you shouldn't have a helmet on because you shouldn't need to have a helmet. And you should learn to use your body properly and then you know when do you introduce a helmet and you should never be leading with your head so there are ways to really look at every sport and do what's called developmentally appropriate activities and that's really the safest way we know how to play sport
1: yeah like like as like a young kid at like eight years old you really should be worrying about worrying about like a brain injury because you're still young just nothing like nothing like really bad is going to happen to you but if you're like an, a football player now when you're in like your thirties, forties, you know, that's when your body starts to become a little weaker and definitely won't be able to protect protect you from those very serious brain injuries.
2: Yeah, so, so that it's, it's a very, very important question, and uh, you may be referring to this entity called chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a neurodegenerative disease. And we're really now just starting to untangle a lot of what that means, because on the one hand, there have been several football players who have been described uh, with this condition, on the other hand, there are now numerous people who have never played football, have never had any traumatic brain injury in their life who have the same condition. So what do we do with that information? And one of the things that we're doing in our study is, is we're looking at a lot of other issues that can lead to a brain degeneration. So for example, drug use or alcohol use or developing diabetes, obesity, hypertension, those are probably the strongest risk factors other than genetics for developing some sort of brain degeneration. And a paper was just published, it's what's called a systematic review of the literature. So they looked at all of the world literature and they found that football players who were uh, in their fifth and sixth decades of life compared to the general population were healthier. So we need to understand this better, and it doesn't mean we have to wait 30 years for that, because even right now, there should be every attempt to avoid head trauma in football, because it really has no place. If it happens accidentally, just like it can happen accidentally in wrestling, and ice hockey, and riding a bike, well, you know, you want to always differentiate uh, those two, but we have to be clear that the methodology that leads to certain conclusions is actually the correct methodology.
1: You mentioned like literature being published. So I was wondering if you could like tell us about the books and scientific journals that you've published yourself.
2: So I've published or been an editor of nine books. I think the one I'm most proud of it was my eighth book. It's called Sports Neurology. And it's part of this series of academic neurological texts called, you know, The Handbook of Clinical Neurology, and I co-edited it with Robert Stern. And he's the co-director of Boston University's Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy Center. So we decided to take a very, very deep dive into all aspects of neurology and sports. So not just head trauma, that's neurology, but spinal cord damage or peripheral nerve damage or muscle damage, or a mental health aspects, and or what if someone has a neurological condition like epilepsy? Can they play sport? I think another book I was really, I am really proud of. It's the first book I co-authored, and and it was in 1989. It was called Drugs and the Athlete, and that was before there was a World Anti-Doping Agency, and there were a lot of questions about drug use in sport. So. It, it became a pretty important academic book and actually led in many ways to uh, much of what the World Anti-Doping Agency is today. So yeah, it's fun, you know, writing is fun and there's nothing quite like after you've been just, you know, spending countless hours writing, editing, writing, editing, rewriting, re-editing, and so on and so forth. And then you finally hold the book in your hand and, and it's just kind of, it's, it's like just a magical moment where it all seems worthwhile.
1: So you mentioned how there's always like editing, rewriting, rewriting, since I also want to be an author in the future, I would like to know if you can tell us the whole entire process or maybe just like a little bit of the process of being an author.
2: You know, I'll cite not someone who's my favorite author because he writes like really scary books. His name is Stephen King and he's a prolific writer, whether you like his genre or not, he's a prolific writer and and many people consider him to be a, a brilliant writer. But he wrote a book called On Writing, and he talks about the whole process. And basically, he says that what my final product is, is maybe going to be 20% of what I originally started off with. And so you write and you write, and then you look at yourself and say, well, what's really necessary here? You know, for me, it depends on my mood, because sometimes my writing, I actually am walking around the house or walking around a park and dictating. And these are all my thoughts. And other times I'm alone, and and I just start handwriting on a piece of paper. And other times I'm in this like really, uh, you know, this mindset where I feel like everything can just come out of me, and I'll just go directly to my keyboard and I'll type everything out. So so a lot of it is the mood process, and a lot of it is okay. I'm going to just put together a stream of consciousness, bunch of thoughts right now, and I'll come back to it and see what makes sense. And other times it's being very rigid and saying. Okay, here's the outline, and I have to follow it. So you know, I don't think there's one right or wrong way. it's you just have to kind of decide I'm just gonna give it a try and I'm just gonna write and then you'll find your way or or like me, you'll find multiple ways depending on on the mood
1: i I tried reading Stephen King's it since I watched the movie, but like I was like, I don't feel like reading over a thousand pages. that's too much of work. <laughs> so since is like the last question before our wrap-up question what is your experience with working with professional athletes since i know that you were with like tennis i was wondering if you ever worked with like serena williams or someone like that
2: well so i would never actually divulge who i worked with i consider that very sacred space so anytime we're doing any sort of medical work you never let others know who you're working with and But people have certainly seen me with athletes and so forth. And and so I'll say that brings me to probably the most important point I'll make about professional athletes and working with professional athletes. They're human beings. And many of the professional athletes, they're young and they may not have developed fully from a maturational point of view. But in the public eyes, they're expected to be gods or goddesses. And you realize when you're working with them, they have the same needs, they have the same emotions, they have the same doubts, they have the same trouble with relationships as everyone else. And so what I realized very early on, and I was fortunate to be mentored by people who gave me this sort of depth of knowledge, I would really call it wisdom about working with professional athletes or any stars, is that you never objectify them looking at them as someone that's just, you know, uh, satisfying our desires or our needs and, and not really looking at them as, as a full human being. And so taking that one step further, I actually fired three people at US Open over my 16 years as chief medical officer because they asked a professional athlete that they were treating for an autograph. And that's basically, in my opinion, the worst thing that you can do. You're a physician, you're holding someone in sacred space And when you realize when you're working with anyone that you're treating medically, their primary emotion is fear. They're afraid something might be wrong with them or they're afraid that they're not being validated. And then when all of a sudden you ask for an autograph, you're objectifying them as as someone that's serving your purpose and you're not there to work with them. So you realize these are individuals who are incredibly gifted in one sphere of their being. So they're gifted in athletics, just like you could work with a gifted writer or a gifted comedian or a gifted actor. But ultimately, they're human beings. You're always responsible to the health and well-being of the person you're with. But here you're responsible for protecting them from a a public who may want something else out of them that might not be in their best interest.
1: When people think of athletes, they usually think of them as like a huge trophy, but really it's that they didn't get all the that through magic or something. They just got through there with hard work and they're not like this big trophy that people think they are. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that.
0: So Dr. Heinlein, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your 13 year old self?
2: Look, when I was 13, the last thing that was in my mind was becoming a physician. And certainly I had no idea I would be working with the NCAA. I mean, I grew up wanting to be a priest, you know, so you pursue that. What does that mean? You surround yourself by people who give you advice and, and you pursue every one of your dreams. And, and sometimes it makes sense to really dive into them deeply at an early age. And sometimes it makes sense to sample numerous dreams but i think the most important advice i can give is follow your dreams pursue them and
1: surround yourself by people who love you and are going to support your dreams you brought up like wanting to be a priest and that really surprised me like i didn't expect someone who is the chief medical officer of the ncaa to one day like as a kid wanted wanting to be a priest
2: Well, you know priests are about healing and physicians are about healing and i'm Basically, if you look at numerous professions, you would want to believe they should be about healing. And so it's just, you know, what what ultimately then becomes the best avenue to to do that.
0: Well, Dr. Hanline, thank you for being on the show.
2: My pleasure. And great job, Jake. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Formative. I'm your host, Rachel Gazdick, CEO of New York Edge. My co-host today was Jake from PS175 in the Bronx. He was assisted by Jesse Cowan. Our guest today was Dr. Brian Heinlein, Chief Medical Officer of the NCAA. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Race Car. The show is produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert. Post-production and original music by Garrett Tiedemann, production manager Gabriella Montaquin, and executive producer David Hoffman. Thanks to the whole team here at New York Edge for making this series possible. Never miss an episode of Formative by subscribing to the series at newyorkedge.org formative or wherever you get your podcasts.